We are uh, in the book of Luke, so if you uh, want to begin turning there to Luke. Alright, so uh, go ahead please, we're in Luke chapter 2, so you can go ahead and turn there. Why don't we uh, pray? Father, we thank you for uh, the word, Lord, we thank you for this story, that uh, this account that we're very familiar with, this Christmas story account, and... Uh, and yet, Lord, as we maybe, I don't know, separate it out from the holiday itself that we celebrate here and consider it, Lord, uh, just kind of by itself, Lord, we know that you speak to our hearts and we experience that and see that. And so, Lord, we pray tonight that uh, your word would just come alive within our hearts and our hearts uh, would be quickened by your word and uh, the two would just mix and, uh, Lord, your blessing would pour forth. Uh, so speak to our hearts, draw us to yourself, we ask. And give us hearts that are ready to receive and to follow. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Luke chapter 2. Now, uh, we have looked at chapter 1. Chapter 1 uh, was a chapter announcing a lot of births that were coming. Uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth, the priest and his wife, were told, despite the fact that they were well advanced in years and had had no children, that they were going to have a child. That would be John the Baptist. Uh, Mary, this young girl, uh, despite the fact that she had not been with a man uh, in that particular way, she uh, is told she's going to have a child. Uh, we're going to see the birth of that particular child today. That'll be the Lord Jesus. Uh, we saw the responses of these two. That Zachariah, unbelieving, well, how do I know this is going to be? You know, I've been praying this prayer for a long time. Prove it to me. And he said, I'm Gabriel. I come from the right hand of God. I'm from, like, I'm next to God. And, and I it's going to happen. You trust me, you know. And uh, but he's unbelieving, and he experiences the consequences of that. Uh, Mary uh, also poses a question. Her question is, "Well, how can these things be? Not from an unbelieving sense, but uh, just I don't understand the science here, Mom. You know, we had this little class at my house, and Mom explained things to me, and it just doesn't fit that. You know, I'm, I'm confused. So uh, her answer is given to her as well. And through it all, you have this sense of, "All right, I'm the servant of the Lord." I, I put myself out there, let God do what he's going to do, and use me in the process. Well, now we come to, a, if you will, maybe a challenge to that. Okay, so you said, Mary said, in what we call the Magnificat, she said, behold, the handmaiden of the Lord. Whatever God needs to do, I'm available. Okay, that's going to be challenged a little bit in what we're going to see today. Um, so uh, let's jump in. This is verse 1 of chapter 2. It says, now in those days... A decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, some of your versions will say something to the effect of to pay a tax. Um, others will talk about a census that is taking place. That's generally what is going on here. The people that uh, owned land... The Roman, let me back up a little bit. Uh, we are in Jewish country, but that country is under the control of Rome. And Rome is assessing taxes and different things like that on the people there. And as long as the people pay it, everything's cool. No one minds. You know, we can all just sort of get along with one another here. Well, one of the ways that they were going to assess that tax was to determine who owned what land, what property they had, that they could collect taxes on those things. Oftentimes, land... Uh, 
was a form of wealth, if you will, that was passed down through the families. And you might own land, but not necessarily live on that land. And that was the case uh, with many of the people. Joseph, in particular, was an example of that, where he has a family line that is passing down land, but Joseph lives way up north in the area of Galilee. You're going to see in a few minutes here that Joseph has to make his way to Bethlehem. Well, Bethlehem is some 80 miles away um, from the Galilee region of Nazareth. If you're jotting this down, there's basically three regions to the country of Israel, in, in many ways even today. In the north, you have what's called the Galilee region, then sort of halfway between the top and the middle, so I don't know what mathematically that comes out to, but you have Samaria, and then once you hit the middle on down, that would be what we call Judea. And one of the key cities of Judea is Jerusalem, which is unique in and of itself. It's almost its own little region there. Well, Mary and Joseph, uh, and they lived up in the area of Nazareth, which was in the Galilee region, had its own unique aspect to it. And, but they had to make their way down to a little town called Bethlehem, which was down in the Judea region there. Okay, So they're going to have to make their way down there. This fellow now, Caesar Augustus. Caesar is a title. As a matter of fact, Augustus is a title as well. This was a fellow who, uh, as a boy, went by the name of Gaius. Um, and when he became sort of the supreme commander or ruler or emperor of Rome, uh, they decided to change his name to the August One. So his name was Gaius Octavius, and they changed his name to Caesar Augustus, the August One. Other uh, translations which fit the, this word, the August One or the August One, would be of the gods. And so Caesar of the gods. His uncle was Julius Caesar. When Julius Caesar died, the kingdom was sort of passed on to three different guys. Uh, one of those was, uh, you know, the, the story of Anthony and Cleopatra. True story. Cleopatra was from Egypt. She married Anthony of Rome. Uh, and together, uh, he, he basically, Egypt was going to try to overthrow Rome. Anthony, who was a leader of Rome, decided to pair himself with Egypt instead, even though he was already the leader of Rome, uh, and take it all over and then just make one conglomerate of a nation there. Uh, and that didn't work out for him. And so that was sort of the end of him. Um, but eventually this Augustus, this Gaius here, he rises up. He becomes the, the emperor, this great emperor of Rome, rivaling Julius Caesar, real fellow there. And it says, he sent out a decree, verse 1, that all the world should be registered. Rome had conquered the known world of that day. And now they essentially want to dis determine who lives where, who owns what, how much can we tax. It's this whole process here. Then it goes on. So that gives you one idea. Now, Caesar Augustus ruled uh, approximately 16 years B.C. till about uh, 8 or so years A.D. You know, so Jesus was born during his reign. So it was about 15, 16 years before Jesus, about 10 years or so following uh, Jesus when he's a boy. So he was sort of this uh, guy reigning there. Luke narrows it down to that. He says somewhere in this window, this story is going to happen. Then he goes on and he talks about the first registration when was when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Now Syria was under the control of the Romans, and they the Romans placed this fellow Quirinius as the governor of that region. Syria included Israel at that time period. Okay, so that's why his name is being mentioned here because the story is taking place here in Israel. 
Quirinius, he came to power somewhere around 6 BC, so about six years before Jesus, uh, and like four years after Jesus, so just a smaller window. So we're narrowing down the time frame here. So when was Jesus born? What year? A lot of people would yell out, zero! Uh, there is no year zero. You, if you're on your timeline there, you would do one, and then you go right to negative one, so there's no year zero here. And so, all right, well, then Jesus was born right in there, between negative one and one. Actually, uh, I think I shared this last week, we know that the, the calendar which was created, it was commissioned by the Pope, a fellow by the name of Pope Gregory, uh, and he felt that the most important event in human history was the birth of Jesus. And so that everything, even time itself, should revolve around that most important event. So we commissioned a guy, did some research, and the fellow came up with the date that Jesus was born. We'll just call it the year one there. Um, shortly thereafter, he realized his mistake, that there were some numbers that were off, and the actual year Jesus was probably born, sounds ridiculous, but was four before Christ was when Jesus was born. But nonetheless, that was it. So this fellow Quirinius, he comes into power just a couple of years before Jesus. That is mentioned here. Luke is narrowing down this time period for us here. Anyway, verse 3 says, They all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David. Now, the last that we have heard, or all we really know at this point, is about Mary, and that she was a virgin, and that uh, an angel came to her, spoke to her, and said, you're going to be with child. She kind of questions that. We really don't learn anything about her husband, or this man that she's engaged to, the term in the scripture is betrothed to. Uh, A couple summers ago, I worked on this here, we gave it out on the Israel trip. It's called the Harmony of the Gospels. And the purpose of it was basically to take the four gospel stories, and each of them oftentimes will add a different aspect to the story, never contradicting one another, but always just sort of adding a little more to the fuller picture. One person described it as if, if there was a car accident and four people were standing on four different corners, they would all have a slightly different angle from which they observed it. And so they're not really giving contradictory information, but what they're doing is giving complementary information, and that's how the four Gospels are. So what, what I did was I went through and I took those stories that were the same story told in either one of the Gospels or two of the Gospels, three of the Gospels, some cases four of the Gospels, and I tried to piece them together as one big story. And so we put that together here. Well, in this particular book, if we were just reading Luke, we wouldn't even know who Joseph was yet. But as we're reading, like in the Harmony of the Gospels, as we see in, in places like uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25, we discovered that there was another guy on the scene at that time, a fellow by the name of Joseph. So when the angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to be with child and, and have a baby, well, that's not just the end of the story there. Eventually she comes back to Joseph and she says, I'm going to have a baby. And he's like, what are you talking about? And he's angry with her. He knows what that means. And it says that he goes to bed that particular evening. And while he is in bed, uh, and he's trying to sort of weigh through this whole idea of, you know what, I like Mary. I don't want her to die because they would have stoned her, you know, for this sin. I don't want her to die. I can't marry her, though. What would people say? Everyone's going to know. You know, they're going to see this and that. And so eventually the word comes to him. He says, you know what, 
everything's fine, Joseph. This is from the Lord. Go with it. And Joseph submits himself to that as well. You can read about that in Matthew chapter 1. Well, it's that Joseph now who God has kind of brought in on the plan. And he's like, okay, this girl's pregnant. I didn't do it. Nobody else did it. The Lord did it here. All right, I'm married to her. And so, verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. Now, Galilee is the region, remember? It's all that land around the Galilee Sea. Or, uh, yeah, that's it. From the town of Nazareth to Judea, down in the south, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. Everybody had to go back to their home, if you will, where they own land and stuff like that, because he was of the house and lineage to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. And again, Matthew chapter 1. Now, uh, there was basically three stages to the um, Jewish marriage. There was the engagement, the betrothal, and then the marriage itself. Uh, the engagement, it could take place when kids were three. You know, mom and dad of this family, mom and dad of that family said, wouldn't it be awesome if we could go on vacations together, you know, as one big family and all that. And they make a plan, and those kids would be engaged. And then they would grow up through this process. Uh, what we think about engagement would be more of what they call the betrothal. That's where it's like, this is official. Uh, the only thing that's not official, they're not living at the same house anymore, or together, I should say. Um, but everything about it, they, that was for real. If you wanted to get out of a betrothal, you had to actually go through a divorce process. And then there was the actual marriage consummated on the marriage night. So they are in that betrothal period here. Uh, it says, To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who is with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and she laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, I find it interesting that verse 1 talks about a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now, do you think Caesar Augustus cared whether Mary was eight and a half months pregnant? No. Do you think he cared, you know, hey, I moved all the way to China. Do I really have to go all the way back to Bethlehem? I don't want to hear it. Get there. Do what you got to do. I made a decree. See, here's this guy, all powerful, controls the whole world, can do whatever he wants, right? But reality, who's in charge here? It's the Lord, isn't it? Because there was a prophecy in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that we read this summer, that was written some 700 years earlier, that said that the Messiah would be born, not just in Israel, not just somewhere in the world, and not in a city called Nazareth, but that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And Mary is on like a time constraint there. She can't go on for 20 months here. You know, it's coming out in... In 10 months, the baby's going to come forth. And so, why is Caesar Augustus making this decree? Because he's all-powerful? Because he can do whatever he wants to do? That's probably what he thinks. But he's doing it because God is saying, you know what, I need to move my Messiah. I need to move him down there to, his parents down there to Bethlehem, so he can be born in Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecy. Over uh, on Sundays, a couple weeks back, I was talking about the way in which God was moving the, the empire of Egypt to come up against uh, the Babylonians, you may recall, and they had to march through Israel to get there. And one of the points that I was making is how God was just sort of moving the chess pieces around of world history because it was time for Babylon to go. 
and uh, or excuse me, the Assyrians to go and the Babylonians to rise up. Well, I thought about that in this particular passage here, and there's a proverb which I, I wish I would have known then. I, I I would have read it to you, but this is Proverbs chapter twenty-one, one, and speaking to this idea of uh, Augustus isn't really in charge here. It says. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So he thought he was the one in charge, but God really is the one moving the pieces because he's going to fulfill the prophecy that Jesus the Messiah would be born. You remember when the wise men would come uh, to the religious uh, folk there in Jerusalem and say, Where would the, where's the Messiah going to be built? And what's the answer? Not the wise men, I should say, Herod, because where's... Where's the uh, Messiah going to be born? And they said, Bethlehem, of course. Why? Because Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And that's exactly where Jesus was born. You know, also, I think of Mary and Joseph from this perspective. How do you think they responded when word filtered to them, everybody's got to go back to their you know, grandparents' house, um, there's a decree? And I'm sure there was a sense of, this stinks. God, what are you doing? You could stop this if you want to. Why won't you stop this? You're right? There, there was, had to be an aspect of it. I'm sure Joseph was like, I am in so much trouble. You know what I mean? I gotta, she's going to be so mad the whole trip, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And, but there's an aspect of this where there are times where in our lives we look at circumstances and we think that God is not on the throne when the reality is that God is on the throne. And the most wonderful and glorious thing that God is seeking to accomplish, you have to go through this apparent you know, difficulty to get to that particular thing. And God's going to accomplish a great thing. Now, they make their way down there. When she gets there, water breaks and all that sort of stuff. It's time for her to give birth. She does give birth uh, to her firstborn son. Notice some of these key words. She gives birth. It's not like the, it doesn't seem like there's a whole bunch of people that are gathered around her, older ladies that are coming along and saying, it's going to be all right, we'll get through this, you know, and here's how it's going to work. But it's her and Joseph running around getting hot water in a bowl or something, you know what I mean, or doing whatever he's supposed to be doing there. But there she is by herself. I wonder, I don't know this, but I wonder if when she went to visit Elizabeth, uh, do we know, was she there when, when Elizabeth gave birth? I think she was. And so maybe she learned a little bit about birthing in that particular place there. Maybe she grew up with it. But still, to be there by yourself, you know, with your husband who doesn't know anything, and we don't, uh, and to have to give birth in that particular way, you know, here now you're getting into some of these, you still want to be my servant? You still want to be the handmaiden of the Lord? And you're all in on these things? Chances are, remember it says there was no room for them in the inn? The re- it wasn't... Like we, we get this pish, this idea that, okay, so there's no room in a hotel room, but you know they're in some nice shed in the back there, you know with like a, a carpeting or something like that. It, it was not like that. They were just thrown back in, into wherever they could. One guy I was listening to said they were probably out in some alleyway somewhere, out in the dark. Now and here's another point that I, I came across today is Joseph has family in this town. Why didn't his family take him in? Why his family do something for him? Could it be because in their mind, Joseph got this young girl pregnant out of wedlock? and You're not coming in our house, kind of thing. Do you still want to be my servant? Is sort of the question I keep coming back to. And so 
they get, she gives birth, uh, placed in a manger. Now we think of a manger as something associated with Christmas. It must be nice or something. A manger was a feeding trough. Um, you know, it was, seemed to be the perfect shape, you know, for a little baby to plop that down in there or something. Um, it's certainly not beautiful. It's not, it's not nice. It's not comfortable. Um, but it would do. And so they wrapped up the baby, put uh, baby, the baby Jesus there. And then it talks about because there was no place, no room for them in the inn. And here is the Savior of the world coming from heaven itself. But there was no place. People couldn't fit him, them in, or him in, I should say, to sort of their lives and where they were going and what they were doing. And uh, I, I would suspect most of us know lots of people like that, don't we? You know, where there's just no time for Jesus. When, when I'm sick and dying, there'll be time for Jesus. I've got a lot of calls from friends who are sick and dying. Could you please come? And I'm sort of like, well, I'll go. Of course I'll go. But like, where you been, man? You, know, you had lots of time to follow the Lord. You know, we're all 40, 45, or whatever we are now. Uh, you had lots of time to follow the Lord. It's not just for your deathbed. You know, it's for this whole time in between here. But they had no room, for, no place for him. Well, anyway, it says in verse 8, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field. They were keeping watch over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. That is the standard response to angels in the Scripture. You know, I can only see an angel. You don't want to see an angel. You would be filled with fear. So the angel said to them, Wisely, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. I'm not coming to kill you, so fear not. I'm, I'm coming to bring you good news. So you had these shepherds out in the field. Now Bethlehem was a small town, but it also had outlying fields. And those outlying fields is where these shepherds would be. Um, so no more than a 10-minute walk into town or something like that. Bethlehem, also you need to know, is located just about seven miles uh southwest of Jerusalem, so it's not that far outside of Jerusalem. These shepherds, scholars uh, understand them to be watching the sheep that were used for the sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. Right? So they'd be carted up into town every now and again. And uh, So these shepherds are out there. They're just doing what they do. I appreciate it. Here is an announcement from God himself through these angels that the Savior has come into the world and who is the announcement made to? It's made to just normal people. And I think that's important. It's not made to Caesar Augustus. It's not even made to the high priests and all these religious leaders so that they can go and tell other people. But it's just made to regular, normal people. And what are those regular, normal people doing? They're going about their regular, normal tasks of their everyday lives, which I think is extremely significant it's as we are just faithfully going about doing what god has called us to do that god shows up and he speaks and he ministers to us and so here you have this they're coming they're speaking to these shepherds um, now also another idea is many times we think of shepherds as like king david was a shepherd and the lord was uh the good shepherd you know and all these things uh, but shepherds really weren't the cream of the crop of society um, shepherds, because of the work they were doing around these sheep, were ceremonially, ceremonially, if that's a word, unclean. And yet, it's to those unclean people, to the dregs sort of of society, that the Lord comes and he reveals himself. And so, great news for you, verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David 
a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So, born to you this day a Savior. The name Jesus, uh, Yeshua, means Savior. And that Jesus would come and he would save in that regard. He's also called the Christ. The Christ, another term for that, if we were doing the Hebrew, would be the Messiah, a transliteration of the Hebrew, the Messiah, the Anointed One, God's Chosen One, is how it could be worded. So here you have a Savior who is God's Chosen One, the Lord. Now, Jesus throughout the Gospels is called the Lord, um, capital L-O-R-D. In the Old Testament, you will read about the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, That's a way of specifically saying Yahweh when it's all four letters are capitalized. That's clearly referring to God. In the New Testament, we don't see the term Yahweh or Lord with the four capital letters. But when you see the one capital L-O-R-D, that is the term Adonai. And then sometimes you'll even see the small L, small O, small R-D. So someone might say uh, to their boss, they might call them Lord or something. That would be with the small L. Here, you're, what is being used is this capital L. Here's what's interesting. L-O-R-D, capital L, is used 16 times already in uh, this gospel here, and it's always referring to God, the Father. And now, it's essentially saying this, a Savior, the Anointed One, God Himself, has come. And these shepherds are like, what? Where? Go into the city of Bethlehem and see. In this, you're getting it? You guys aren't that impressed. This is something. This is amazing here. So it says... Okay. And it says, and this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Is that unusual? Actually, no. no you know, you, you wrap the baby up in what you got. What's really unusual is in a manger. In a what? You'll find a baby wrapped up in a blankie in a crib. Okay, could you give me a little more, please? But when you say, in a manger, you're like, all right, I just go look for a feeding trough. So wrapped in, lying in a manger, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased, um, or with whom he is well pleased, I think some of your versions will say there. So if these poor shepherds weren't freaked out enough by one angel, now there's thousands of angels that are screaming out or singing out in song here, so they're, needless to say, pretty afraid. But I wonder if this were to come to the, like the priests and the religious leaders, the story just wouldn't jive. What? God himself, the creator of the world, in a manger? Come on, that doesn't make any sense. But these shepherds are dumb enough to believe this. Like, okay, <laughs> if that's where you say he is, that's where he is. I get it here. But what I find interesting is, here is Jesus taking on flesh and humbling himself to become obedient to this lowly place of society. Philippians chapter 2, it says, Let this mind be in you that is also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, He humbled himself and became a man. Read Philippians 2 sometime. It'll blow your mind. And then you go back to the point of it. And he says, and let that be your mind as well. Where you're willing to deny yourself and all your so-called rights that you may have so that you can be a servant to other people. And that's what the Lord 
will do for us. So here is Jesus lying in this manger. The angels say, go check it out. Verse 15. So when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing. Remember that they were in the fields. Now they're going to go to the city and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord had made known to us. And so they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So I just try to put myself there. You know, if they are in some dark little corner of Bethlehem there, uh, just trying to find some shelter or whatever it may be, and there they are, Mary's probably exhausted, Joseph is probably just, you know, dozing in and out or, or coming in and out of sleep or whatever. There's the baby. They wake up and check and make sure the baby's breathing as the new parents always do. Is he still alive? Yes, okay, good. You know, and all this, or you, I, you sleep, I'll stay awake, and then I'll, you know, this, they go through that whole process there, and then a whole bunch of grisly shepherds come running on the scene, and they find this baby in a manger, and there it is, shh, she's sleeping, you know, and they're screaming and yelling because they're having the time of their life uh, that they found this just as it is, and so Mary and Joseph are finally, and Joseph probably like getting ready to fight something, and they finally said, what are you here for? And they said, well, we had this, we were out in the fields. And there was this angel. And it freaked us all out. We were scared to death. But the angel said to make our way into the city and we would find a baby. So we made our way into the city. And there's the baby. This is the baby that the angel talked about. This is the one that they said he's a savior, chosen God himself. There he is. This is amazing. So they they do that. They tell him that. Verse uh, 18, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So it seems others have gathered around. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Just as Mary didn't understand how she could be pregnant and not be with a man, but she was willing to take it. All right, I guess I'll figure it out as we go. Similarly here, she doesn't know the whole plan of God here. It's all sort of coming into focus as she's going. And so she'll regularly throughout the Gospels, she'll be tucking things away, so to speak, into her heart to bring them back later and they'll come to understanding at a later point. Verse 20, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. Now at the end of eight days, when Jesus was circumcised, Excuse me. He was called Jesus. Now the custom for the Jews was to officially name the baby on the eighth day, the day of their circumcision. Uh, scientifically, interesting, they've come to discover uh, that the blood is at a perfect place on that eighth day to coagulate. So the poor baby being circumcised is going to bleed to death there. Uh, but it will naturally begin to heal itself immediately on the eighth day. Leviticus chapter 12 uh, Exodus chapter 13, uh, they speak to the concept of the circumcision. Circumcision was a sign for the Jewish people that they were the chosen ones of God. It was given to Abraham in uh, somewhere around chapter 15 or so, or 18 or so of Genesis there. It would be a sign that the Jewish people were chosen by God. And so all male babies uh, had to be circumcised. That took place according to the passage I said to you, Leviticus 12, uh, Exodus 13, that took place on the eighth day. And so this family is having having Jesus circumcised. Um, Not biblically, but cultural practice became to name the baby on the same day. So they named the baby Jesus there. Notice it says in 21, the name given by the angel 
before he was conceived in the womb. We led, we read that, I should say, in a previous chapter. Well, the only other chapter. Uh, verse 22. Now, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy or dedicated unto the Lord. And the practice was that the, the Jewish family, uh, if they had this male child opening, uh, this child opening the womb, first child, they would have to uh, make a payment to the temple, five shekels they would have to bring. That was part of sort of this purification process here. Uh, prior to the Levitical priesthood system that was set up, so you know there's the 12 tribes of Israel. There's actually really 14, I guess you could think of it that way. Well, one of those tribes was dedicated to be the priest of the Lord, the Levites. Well, prior to that system, the firstborn child was dedicated to be the priest of the Lord. And that was introduced, Exodus chapter uh, 13, it's introduced there. And, but you could bring this offering, once the Levitical system was put in place, you could bring an offering instead uh, of having your son go toward that. So that's what's being referenced here. What's also being referenced is the purification rite for Mary. And so forget exactly where that is, uh, but somewhere in the Old Testament, you could look it up. Uh, it talks about if a woman has a male child that uh, 33 days after the circumcision, she should go up to the temple, present herself, and be ritually purified so that she can go through the practices of worship again. If she has a female child, for whatever reason, she has to wait 80 days for that, according to uh, the writings of Moses there. And so that's the time, that's what we're talking about. That's what's happening. So this is 40 days. Jesus is a little bit over a month old. They're going to go up to the temple there. Verse 24, they're going to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, the passage that speaks of this is Leviticus 12. And in there, it really says to bring a lamb for the sacrifice. But if you're too poor... To bring this lamb, this, uh, then you can bring two birds, basically, two turtle doves. And that's what Jesus brings, or his parents bring there, which tells you that Joseph and Mary were poor. They were impoverished, um, which is totally fine. It is what it is there. Interesting, some people would say that if they were right with God, they wouldn't be poor and impoverished. That a sign of God's blessing on your life financially is that you're living your life the right way. But we see lots of examples of people in the scripture that weren't necessarily well-to-do. Um, we see examples of people that were well-to-do. It really doesn't have anything to do with uh, whether God is pleased or displeased with you. It just is what it is. So here was this poor family that brings the two turtle doves, the two young pigeons, and it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. Tradition has it that this guy was 113 years old. We don't have that in the Bible uh, but tradition has it that he was that old. It says that he was righteous and devout, his, or just, some versions say. Uh, that just or that righteousness speaks of his relationship with fellow man, that he was in right relationship with him. He probably did something wrong here and there to other people. You know, he showed up late for a meeting and the other guy got mad or whatever. But for the most part, he was a guy that lived his life the right way amongst other people. Nobody really could say anything bad about the guy. Then it also speaks about him being devout. That speaks of the rightness of his relationship with God. So here's this fella, maybe as old as 113 years old. 
He's righteous. He's devout. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel is a way of saying he's waiting for the Messiah to come. Okay? Now, he doesn't know that the Messiah has already come. Notice it says, the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, you've got to think, if he is 113, he's probably beginning to doubt that prophecy. It better happen today, because I don't think I'll make it to tomorrow. And it says in verse 27, and he came in the Spirit into the temple. What, what that is an expression of where God, God was guiding him, God was directing him. It's not, it's not the sense of, you know, he was in a trance, you know, and next thing you know, he looked up and he was in the temple. It's just that God was leading, God was prompting, God was moving. And that's the same thing that God does to us as we seek to be people that are following the Lord. We're in right relationship with those that are on our left and those that are on our right. Our hearts are longing for the coming of the Messiah. All these things apply to us. We're longing for the coming of Jesus, right? His second coming here. Uh, and we, we seek to be led by the Spirit. Well, how do you promote a leading of the Spirit in your life? Or how do you make sure that's continuing to happen? By yielding to what God says for you to do. And so as God is directing, you yield to that. And so here, God was directing him, God was moving. You know what? Now's a good time. Make your way up to the temple. So he does. He goes up to the temple as the Lord was directing, as was his custom. And while he is there, it just so happened that the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God. And he said, and we'll talk about that in a second. Now, I don't know the actual circumstance of this thing, but here's this old fella who has just become sort of a, a figure at the temple. You know, like there's, there's that table, there's that lamp, there's that guy. He's always there and he's always in that particular spot. And here comes Mary and Joseph in on the scene. Remember, they're from Nazareth. They don't typically come down here to Jerusalem. They do it every once a year, a couple times a year or so. And so this is sort of this, like, whoa, this place is awesome. You know, taking it all in here. I suspect the priest is sort of guiding them and directing. You're coming to for the purification. They see a little baby. Yep, uh, over there with all the ladies. You know, you can see all the ladies with their little babies there. And they're making, what's your baby's name? Yahshua, Savior. And Simeon probably, you know, his ears kind of perk up like my dogs do when you call his name. And his ears sort of perk up and he glances over and somehow all the pieces come together. That's the baby. And so Simeon goes over there, <laughs> give me that baby, you know, and he takes the baby out of his hands. Uh, and you can imagine that whole scenario there. I'm sure it's kind of a walled in area, so nobody thought he was going to run away or anything. Uh, and where's he going to go? He's 113. You know, we'll we'll catch him, you know. And so, but he takes the baby in his arms. And I'm sure Mary and Joseph initially maybe a little bit apprehensive to hand their baby over. um, But now they're kind of settling down. I'm sure there's other people. It's okay, he'll be fine. Don't worry. And they're settling down here. And now they hear his prayer. And he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, as far as Mary and Joseph knew from the announcement that Gabriel had given to Mary, 
they knew that this Jesus was supposed to be the Savior to the Jewish people. But this little reference here, and a light for revelation to the Gentiles, this is new information for them. It's The picture is coming in, into focus in an even greater way. And I'm sure this is blowing their mind. You know, this is our baby. Verse 33, and his father and his mother, so the father would be uh, Joseph there, not his literal physical father, but the one who would raise him. His father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them. And he said to Mary, his mother, so he, he pronounced the blessing on them. But then he says this to Mary. And I wonder why he just says it to Mary. Joseph is, would certainly care, you know, if something's going to happen to Jesus, you know, down the line here. Uh, but it's likely because as you read the Gospels, you don't really read anything about Joseph uh, in there. Probably because Joseph has died already uh, by the time that Jesus comes into ministry and certainly by the time that Jesus will go to the cross. But here, Simeon says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And then he says, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And so, remember I said earlier that just that phrase, Do you, do you still want to be my servant? You know, as the picture is getting clearer and clearer, a sword will pierce. The, the term that is used there is this long Roman sword. It was the most fierce of Roman weapons, or really weapons of the world of that day, that an individual would carry. And that sort of sword, it says, is going to cut through and pierce your own soul. We're obviously, we're talking figuratively here, but emotionally, the pain that she is going to experience. And Mary, remember, was at the foot of the cross as her son hung up there dying. You know, and I'm sure, her, no doubt, her soul was pierced through. All right, but a prophecy to her. Now, verse 36, there's another lady there, too. This lady is also older. She may be as old as 101. So this lady may be as old as 101. She may be as young as 86. So we'll talk about that as we go. It's still up there, though. Um, anyway, verse 36, unless anyone here is 86, then... It's very young. It's very young. Very young. All right. Trevor, I didn't, uh, I'm not sure how old you are. <laughs> Verse 36, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. Now, Asher is a tribe which means happy. The, the word means happy. Um, so they seem like a fun-loving crowd. Um, Asher was one of the northern tribes. Remember, the northern tribes were taken into captivity, we learned, in 722 AD by the Assyrians. And sort of the general belief is that they never really returned as a people. Remember, uh, we talked about the Babylonian captivity of the Jews in the south, the, of the tribe of Judah and the kingdom of Judah. But they went into captivity and then they came out of captivity. Well, the Assyrian captivity, the people never really came out as a people. So many have referred to those ten tribes as like the lost tribes or something. We don't know where they are. Jews don't really know who they are, what tribe they're from, whatever. Well, that's not the case. Here you have, about 500 years after that captivity, she knows she's from one of those tribes. We saw a little bit earlier, another guy was from a, a different tribe. They know who they are. Um, so don't listen to that. Anyway, it says, She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow, widow until she was... 84. Now, so 
let's say she got married at the age of 15 or so. That might be an age when young girls would get married at that particular place. Seven years, she's with her husband, 22 years uh, old now. And then he died, unfortunately. And so she's a widow. Um, the way that this is written, my version makes it seem like she's 84 at this time. Uh, other versions seem to imply that she's been a widow for 84 years, plus the 22, you know, this sort of thing. So uh, who knows? She's up there. Um, and it says, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And so, let's just take a moment and consider this lady. Here's a lady, 22 years old. Her name is Anna, or Hannah, um, same name there. Um, that name means, huh, I forget right now. Um, God is gracious, I believe it means. Uh, and... It's almost like a slap in the face because I don't have any kids. My husband died at a young age. I was 22 years old. I've lived 80 years without uh, you know, my husband there. And every time somebody says, Hannah or Anna, God is gracious, God is gracious, no doubt there would be a temptation to say, I'm not sure I really believe that. Or for other people to say, God is gracious. She, her husband died 80 years ago and she's been without anyone all that particular time here. But here is a lady, and I read this and I liked it, rather than allowing that circumstance to make her bitter, she allowed it to make her better. And what I mean by that is she turned it back to the Lord and she said, you know what, Lord, if I am going to be a single woman the rest of my life, I'm going to use it to the glory of God. And she is out at that temple every day, it seems, she's making her way up there worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. So if Simeon had his corner, then Anna had her corner as well. She was a fixture up there at the temple. And it says, it just so happens, coming at the very hour that Simeon grabs the baby and pronounces this blessing, she comes walking up on the scene. And she overhears it, she hears it, she overhears it, she sees everything that is going on, and she gives glory to God. Because, and notice she says, and coming at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So we saw earlier that the Lord, the Messiah, would be the consolation of Israel. Well, he is also the redeemer uh, of Israel as well, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, uh, this is where, in, in this part of our text, this is where a book like this, and I'm not selling them, so don't worry uh, if it sounds like I'm pushing it, would come in handy because in the story in Luke, the very next scene is that, all right, let's pack up our bags and head to Nazareth. But we know, though, from uh, Matthew chapter 2 that there's a couple of other events that occur in between them going back to Nazareth that just aren't given to us in the book of Luke. Um, and they are... The, the visit of the wise men, you, you read about that in Matthew. And then also, remember, you may recall when uh, Herod decided he wanted to kill all of the babies. The wise men don't return to Herod. He said, you know what, we'll just kill all the babies two years and younger in Bethlehem. Now, that might have been ten babies. Um, it's still terrible. But nonetheless, it wasn't like a gazillion people. Uh, kill them all. We'll just get rid of the problem there. If one of them is the Messiah, then kill them all. They'll all die. Um, well, Joseph was warned in a dream. He 
fled uh, to Egypt there. And then after about uh, two more years or so, then they make their way to Nazareth. And that's where we pick up in the book of Luke, verse 39. It says, okay. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and he became strong and he was filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. Notice it doesn't really talk about miracles and you know sermons that he was giving in his Sunday school class or anything like that. It's just a boy that is living his life. He's growing. He's in strength and in stature. He's being filled with wisdom and God's favor is upon him. God is pleased with him. When Jesus would be baptized a little bit later, he would say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. He was living his life as, unto the glory of God. Verse 41, now his parents, they went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when Jesus was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Uh Uh-oh, his parents not knowing it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Now, the temptation would be to look at this and say, what kind of parents don't know that their kid is not in the car seat, in the back of the car, you know what I mean, this sort of thing. Well, it happens. Um, I, I remember times I left my poor kid places or whatever, and I'm like, did I have him? I, I thought you had you know, this sort of thing. So that sort of thing happens, but I, I've never traveled a day uh, away um, here. But in Mary and Joseph's defense, for safety measures, uh, you didn't travel in a minivan. You didn't travel just with you, your husband, and your kid, or kids. But you would travel in large groups. And the large group could be as many as 80 or 100 people that were making their way from Jerusalem back to Nazareth. You know, Hillary Clinton made the statement, it takes a village. I think she stole it from someone else. But anyway, it takes a village. Well, that's the idea. The whole village sort of everybody knew everybody in the little town of Nazareth there. They were all kind of raising each other. So just make sure you're on the bus. I don't care where you sit. Just get on the bus and we'll make a way. And Jesus is hanging back with the other tweens. The other 12-year-olds there is what Mary and Joseph think there. Well, that evening, I suspect, you know, they're ready to get down, lay down to bed or whatever. And they're like, have you seen Jesus lately? And they're like, no, I haven't. You know, and so then they begin to look. Then they begin to realize... I don't think he's here with us. And it takes a whole other day to make their way back to Jerusalem. And then they run all around Jerusalem trying to find him until eventually they come, as it says, 46, after three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, the temple service was different from our, maybe our church service that we're familiar with. Sort of the way our church service sort of works, and it really doesn't matter if it's a Calvary Chapel or the Roman Catholic Church or whatever, um, but you sort of you go in at a particular time, and everybody goes in at that particular time. They sit down. The ceremony itself takes place. The teaching, whatever it may be, takes place. Then everybody rises up together, and they leave. Well, the temple worship, unless you were on the high feast days and things like that, the temple worship in uh, that day, was it was unique. It was more of a situation where... Uh, It was like an individual kind of a thing. You and your family, you would go and you would do your particular thing. 
there wasn't a everyone didn't gather in the room together they all didn't go into the temple together there wasn't this teaching time that took place or whatever teaching well certain holidays they would but there was never a situation where everybody would make their way into the temple itself and most people couldn't even go into the building teaching would take place around the outer edges of the temple there were these covered porch areas they became known as solomon's portico coast and people teachers you know a particular guy that people were attracted to 10 15 of his disciples would gather and they would he would just teach them and if they were a well-known guy more people would gather around them and a little lesser known a little less people and it was there that jesus was seated with these rabbis these teachers he just kind of pulled up a stone and gathered up next to him and most people would be aged or older and maybe some of them had their kids there and here's this kid coming up by himself no parent with him just sitting there and then it says in verse 46 he was listening to them and he began asking them questions now the context makes it clear that he's not asking them questions from the perspective of look i don't understand this could you help me but he's posing them questions to get them pondering things that they had never really thought of before and what you're going to see they begin to discover is they're all sort of like dumbfounded like i don't know kid that's a good question i don't know shut up kid you know what i mean like you're making me look bad here you know or whatever and so he keeps posing these questions and then verse 47 notice and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers you know so he poses a question the guy says i don't really know and then he responds something said, well could it be because and he answers it and they're like yeah i guess so and they were all amazed wow that's some 12 year old and when his parents saw him so they're running around frantically because uh, they lost their son the messiah of the world uh they and all who heard him were amazed and when his parents saw him they were astonished and his mother said to him son why have you treated us so so they're running around and finally they notice this large crowd that seems to be gathered around this little genius kid uh there and they realize it's their kid and finally they get over to him and i don't know if it's publicly or not but they say son why have you treated us this way like why weren't you with the crowd why would you not we said it was time to go i looked you in the eyes and you knew i said it was time to go and you didn't get on the bus how come and he says behold your father and i have been searching for you in great distress now notice jesus's words and he said why are you looking for me did you not know that i must be in my father's house the idea is not like why were you looking for me like why did you run all around looking for me you knew i would be here but notice the emphasis that he says that i must be in my father's house and i think that's going back to her statement your father and i were looking for you and jesus said no no my heavenly father and his particular house not that he didn't like joseph or anything just kind of reminding mary this is what i've come to do and we're moving into a new sort of stage of things verse 50 and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them later on they would verse 51 and went down and he went down with them and he came to nazareth and he was submissive to them isn't that remarkable he created them and yet he voluntarily and willingly submitted to them submission is not about greater and lesser uh, and because jesus was greater than even his own parents here but he chose to willingly submit himself same thing you may be greater than your boss at work maybe smarter than he or her 
and all these sorts of things. But you submit yourself in that particular position there, and you become a good servant uh, while you're working there. And so Jesus submitted himself to his parents. Notice again, and Mary, she tucked these things, treasured up all these things in her heart. And while Jesus was submitting, he couldn't become a rabbi until he was 30. So 12 years old, another 18 years. While he was submitting, it says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, which is essentially what we read up in verse 40. And that's the fruit of submission. You know, so maybe you're in a situation here. Uh, I don't think we have any young people here. But one of the things that we, we speak into teens' lives, most teens are pretty confident they know more than their parents, right? Uh, we're pretty aware of that here. Um, the reality is they don't, right, Jay? They think they do, though. But nonetheless, they still need to submit. And so one of the things we speak into teens' lives is this, the importance of submission and the work that God can do in their life as a result of that. Same idea for us. Most of us are working adults and so on. Uh, as we have to submit ourselves to other people in that regard, maybe people we don't necessarily like, maybe people we don't necessarily respect or agree, but we do respect the position. And so we submit. And what's the result? God does a work in us. And notice there, the fruit of submission, we increase in wisdom, we increase in this idea here of stature, and then in favor with God and man. Amen?